This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you politics out the boring bits. You can listen to my Times Radio show live, Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app. It's free and it's fun. Coming up on today's episode, we've got the latest Times Radio focus group. We've been doing them every month since Times Radio launched back in June 2020 with James Johnson, former number 10 pollster, who asks a panel of voters for their assessment of what's going on in politics. It's not the same as a poll, but it gives us a sense of the mood and what real voters are saying. And James has concluded that today's is the worst group we've ever had for the Tory governments in, what, more than three and a half years. To be honest, it's not brilliant for Labour either, but it's a hell of a listen. That's coming up in just a moment. But first, as we always do, it's time for this... Manveen Rana and someone called Matthew on Times Radio. And Depot's here in the studio, which is great because it means Manveen Rana's bought cakes. Yes. Yes, <laughs> very important. I should do this week's Matthew is Matthew Paris. Matthew, how are you? Uh, very good and the better. They're, they're, they're sort of mini Danish pastries. Lovely mini I've had two already. <laughs> yeah, I've had one of the raisiny ones. I might have a pano chocolat in a minute. So we always enjoy it when you both come in. Now, uh, let's talk about uh, what is going on. Well, it's, well the start with was both leaders have got troubles. So we'll start with uh, Rishi Sunak, uh, first of all. He's still promising to stop the boats, even though his plan was rejected by the Supreme Court. Uh, it's not clear at all that his plan B is any better than the plan A. This was uh, the Home Secretary, James Cleverly, on Times Radio earlier. We were disappointed by the result, but we had contingency plans in place for a whole range of options, including the result that we've got. So we're working uh, quickly, and you will see, your listeners will see, uh, just how seriously we take this issue. We know it matters enormously to communities right across the country, uh, and we are absolutely determined to take action on this. Knowing that people are concerned about it is not the same as having any idea of how to address it, Matthew. No, I think they do have an idea of how to address it, but I don't see how they could do it in the time uh, available. The, the, the Supreme Court decision was absolutely clear. Rwanda is not a safe jurisdiction for these people. 
if it's not a safe jurisdiction, how do you turn it into a safe jurisdiction? It's a whole African country. You can. You can train people. You can, you can bring in procedures. But you, you can't do it all before next spring, as they say they're going to do. So what should, what should they do? Is it, because is it actually about symbolism? Symbolism important in politics, but being seen to try to do something is enough. And actually, because of so few people who are ever likely to go to Rwanda, the symbolism of that you might be sent there is supposed to act as a deterrent. Is it worth it to keep ploughing on with it? Or do, does there's a point at which the, the Prime Minister just looks impotent? I think it is worth it. I'm not quite sure that Rwanda in the end is going to be a place, but I think the concept of bouncing illegal immigrants straight back to a third place and through that means persuading the people traffickers and, and, and the people trafficked that this is no way of getting to Britain. I, I, I still think that's a strong idea. It might work. It seems to be catching on in the rest of Europe, but that doesn't really solve the immediate problem of how, how do you get Rwanda right? We were talking about this uh, yesterday, Malvi, that part of the problem is you need to find a country which is deterrent enough, yes. but it clears the, <laughs> clears the bar, it gets past the Supreme Court. But it, it can't be, you know, um, I think Alice Thompson said yesterday, it can't be Germany, because uh, that's people, well, if I end up in Germany, then that's, that's fine. Quids in. Um, it's not, but, and also you need the other country to be on board and to want your money and resources and everything else. Yeah, I sort of think this is a bit of a fool's errand, to be honest. Um, I don't think there's any chance of them achieving this by spring unless, you know, they actually take a sabbatical and go and try and fix Rwanda's problems for, for the next few months because, you know, at the moment what they're proposing is really definitional change. They're going to try and get around what the Supreme Court has come up with by just changing the law to say it's a safe place. But I don't think that... That's a particularly convincing answer. Um, I, I think they'll be sued before they know it. Um, and, you know, it, it is, you know, I, I think Matthew's saying this is a, a potential answer, being able to pass people onto a third country. The problem at the moment is that, you know, now that the Albanian problem has been sort of fixed for now, you know, the bulk of the people coming are Afghans, many of whom were promised that, you know, if they worked for us, they would be given safe passage to Britain. It didn't happen at the time uh, because it was such chaos and, you know, uh, the, the Prime Minister's wife wanted to save animals first. But, you know, so we do actually have a responsibility to some of the people who are coming, um, which, you know, Rwanda just doesn't. Um, there's, there's no obvious way of seeing how Rwanda is going to fix this. You know, there's a, the, the measures that they're talking about are uh, just defining it as a safe country and forcing them to sign a treaty whereby they don't just return them to the country they've come from. But that, you know, if I was a lawyer, I think I'd be looking at that w with glee because there is no guarantee. If these are people they want to return to, to the country they came from, there's no guarantee they're going to treat them well while they're there, which, again, is just a court case in the making. In the longer term, I, I think Juliet... Samuel, in, in the Times this morning, her column is, is right. I've, I've been arguing it for a, about 10 years, I think, <laughs> now. Uh, we have to divest ourselves of the responsibilities that we now have uh, for would-be refugees. Uh, th there are just too many would-be refugees, and, and, and if we find safe ways of their getting here, their numbers will increase. And it's a hard thing to say, but we've got to start looking at the treaties and conventions uh, to, to which we're signatory. And uh, Tony Blair, I think, came to the same conclusion, but this decided it was just beyond the British government to do this. The other thing that um, 
<clears throat> struck me yesterday listening to uh, Rishi Sunak both in the comments but also in his press comments last night is if you put the matter to one side and he goes through how uh, by December last year the number entering the UK legally by small boats more than quadrupled in two years since then this year it's down by a third uh, they've, ed- they've ended, in his words, the farce of taxpayers footing the bill to put illegal migrants in hotels. 50 closures have announced already. Illegal working raids up 70%. 5,000 arrests. Concluded returns and cooperation agreements with France, Bulgaria, Turkey, Italy, Georgia and Albania. They've cut the backlog by almost two-thirds and returned over 20,000 illegal migrants this year. Actually, their story is better yeah. on, the, on, the, on the point of addressing the public's concerns. The story is better than... The impression that they themselves are creating, having put all their eggs at the Rwanda basket. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the problem is they've just made Rwanda the answer to everything. Um, And Suella Braverman has made Rwanda the answer to everything. And if, you know, her intervention so far from the backbenchers or anything to go by, uh, you know, I think they can sort of see that she's going to be a problem on this for an awfully long time. She's made it clear that it's either ineptitude or an unwillingness to stick to their promises that have stopped... Um, them getting the Rwanda deal through so far. If only she She's knew gonna... who'd been Home <laughs> Secretary all this time. She could have done something about it. I know, it. It's a mystery. I know. It's a mystery. And, and you, you're, you're right, Matt, that the, the government have focused on the thing that they can't make any headway with uh, when they should be focusing on the many things they are making headways with. And what about Lee Anderson? Um, Lee Anderson, who is the Deputy <laughs> Chairman of the Conservative Party, his response was yesterday was we should ignore the law and James Cleverly, uh, the Holmes, uh, well, Rishi Sunak was asked about it yesterday at the press conference, and he said, well, he just reflects frustrations. Mm. Is that enough? Can the Conservative Party that you were once a member of, Matthew, have a deputy chairman who thinks the solution to any problem is to ignore the law? Oh, I think so. And no one <laughs> listens to what deputy chairman <laughs> say anyway. <laughs> You don't think it's a problem? No, not really. (laughs) Lee is Lee, you know. Do you remember John Prescott used to hit people occasionally and everyone just (laughs) said, John is John. Yeah. At the same time, you Don't give Lee any ideas. No. You do think Edmund Burke must be turning in his grave. I mean, it does make you think, what is it to be a Tory now? You know, if if you can ignore the law, you can do things which, you know, is being described today by a Supreme Court judge as being constitutionally extraordinary. Um, and you can change the rules, you know, international yeah. law whenever you want to. You don't either. Well, he's not the first person in the current Tory party who thought they could ignore the law, so... Uh, um, <laughs> doesn't always end well. doesn't always end all that well. Uh, let's talk about uh, the problems that Keir Starmer has then. Uh, last night, he lost eight front benches, 56 of his MPs, defying his uh, whip to not vote for a ceasefire. How big a problem do you think that is, Mavi? He's clearly just decided that they're actually being seen to be steadfast. The flip-flopping is such a damaging thing that just ploughing on is, is the right thing to do, even if it means losing, what, a quarter or a third of his MPs? Uh, I think it's a, a problem, and it's a problem that hasn't gone away because you know there were people expected there to be more resignations over this. That doesn't mean that people, you know, aren't still very angry as the numbers keep rising, as the death toll keeps rising, and the facts on the grounds on the ground don't change. You know, that anger is going to continue to simmer. And also, you have some of the people who've left, like Jess Phillips again, aren't sort of the quietest members of Parliament. So, you know, you can see some of this stuff bubbling up as a problem in the future. Um, And, 
you know, you now have American rhetoric around Israel is softening, is having to change. They are having to do a little bit of a, a mini U-turn as, as you know, discreetly as possible. So the idea of, of being steadfast on this, I think, is going to come back to haunt Keir Starmer probably. I, I think it's not a problem at all. It's an opportunity for Keir Starmer, an opportunity to ignore an element in his own party. And um, that's always been important for any Labour leader. Uh, we, we haven't made much of, but perhaps we should, the fact that he... He hasn't lost any of the shadow cabinet over this. The, the shadow cabinet have stayed behind him. He's lost a few, junior, quite a few, quite a few junior um, shadow ministers. But shadow ministers come and go, and they're two for, two for a penny. He's going to stick to his guns. And um, as the world's rhetoric changes, perhaps, as it will, and gets a little more critical and a, a little more keen on a ceasefire, uh, Starmer can simply shuffle in line behind. It, it made me think, actually, last night when I heard the news, I was in the car when I heard the news about Jess Phillips, for some reason my mind went immediately to Graham Brady, who... <laughs> Uh, was a shadow minister with David Cameron's and quit over grammar schools, and this was seen as a devastating blow yes. to, yes. to David Cameron's authority. And, you know, one of them went on to be prime minister and the other one didn't. So, um, And actually, there was a good stat. Where was there? There was a good stat in uh, uh, Jerry Scott's piece in The Times today, pointing out that in 2003, 29% of Labour MPs defied Tony Blair over a bark. 28% of Labour MPs defied Keir Starmer last night. So, mm. you know, and we know what happened. Labour ended up being in power for another seven years. Tony yeah. Blair went on to win a general election. Foreign policy is also, you know, I think voters can sort of segment that off and put it to one side, maybe. Yeah, I mean, Cameron had a huge failure over the Syria vote. Mm. Um, you know, I think it turns out most, you know, most foreign policy issues don't really tend to have very much impact on voters here. I think this is slightly different. This this does have a whiff of 2003 about it. You, know, you can sort of see people who, who wouldn't normally go out and protest protesting about it. So I'm, I'm still not sure how it's going to play out. Yeah, Tony Blair lost a foreign secretary. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Keir Starmer hasn't even lost a shadow foreign secretary. Yet. But <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's, it's a good reminder, I suppose, that uh, and in a way, the fact that this is all on the front pages today, alongside everything else going on in the world, is paying them a compliment because they are, they are where they are in the polls. And so, as a result, this sort of thing, uh, this sort of thing ultimately matters. Um, what, do we, what, funny, what do we think about James Cleverly? Is he, um, Patrick Maguire was tipping him as being the next Tory leader, that actually, through the, through the extremes, you'll probably have Suella Bowman on one side, some sort of, I don't know, lefty character on the other side who won't do very well. Does James cleverly come through this? He's now been foreign secretary. He's now home secretary. Is he a, is he a future leader material, Matthew? I, I, th- I think that Patrick's quite shrewd on this. And interestingly, I've heard other voices within the Conservative Party saying the same thing. He's a little bit boring... James Cleverly, and there are circumstances, leadership circumstances, where the boring option is preferable to the exciting option. And in those circumstances, he no, nobody hates him, and you can't say that of many, many people in the Conservative Party at the moment. One thing actually about him, which I found interesting, is that you say he's not boring, but there was a time where he was a very chatty, enthusiastic backbencher who spent a bit of time in the in the bars of Westminster, having a laugh and a gossip. And, and then one day he just seemed to suddenly stop doing that. For a while he still went to the bars, 
But he was really boring. That's probably because he got caught out saying things like, this policy is batshit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe, that, maybe that did play a part. But it was interesting. It was somebody, whether somebody said to him, look, if you want to get on, you need to cut that nonsense out and you need to, you know, knuckle down. Um, and that's clearly what he's done. And, and actually, you know, in my mind, he's still quite new, but he's been there quite a long time now. I've just done a Great Lives uh, programme on Thomas Jefferson, and uh, Thomas Jefferson, the same, was um, quite a wit, quite a raconteur, liked parties, loved wine, and then just suddenly grew up. People do. Mm. Now, what do you do when you go on holiday and somebody needs to look after your pets? I thought it was a bit ridiculous that when we had rabbits, the rabbits used to go to a bunny hotel, which is basically took them around to somebody else's house, um, and for... Um, a decent amount of money. But it turns out it's not just uh, dogs and cats and rabbits. There is now a hen hotel, or hennel, uh, where you can take your chickens. Hennedorm. Uh, <laughs> oh, hennedorm, that's much better. That's much better. Cat Shovelin runs Hen Weekend, a chicken boarding service in Upchurch in Kent, and joins us now. Hi, Cat. Hello, Matt. Go on, then. How did this come about? Um, like you said, really, I've got chickens as pets and when I was looking to go away on holiday, I thought who would, who would look after them and who would be confident enough to do it as well. Um, chickens are becoming quite popular as pets now. So I just thought there must be a gap in the market somewhere. Is it a, is it a COVID thing that people got bored during COVID and got chickens? Um, I think that's one of them. Mm. I also think a lot of charities are rescuing ex-commercial birds now from the farmers. So that's um, been in, a, a big help in um, seeing them as backyard pets. Now, you promise a five-star all-inclusive resort for your feathered family. What makes it so luxury for these chickens? Uh, so they've got activities such as a disco ball, um, a swing. they have music, they have a dust bar, um, they've just got everything really to keep them busy. They've got music? What music are you playing to them? Um, so they particularly like classical FM. Do they? Not Times yeah. Radio? Uh, no, that might be a new one on the yeah, list. Yeah, maybe they might like um, a little bit, of t- bit, of, bit of news and chat. Matt, Matthew, you, you said you, you kept chickens. Fox got them. Right. Foxes always get them in the end. The fox have infinite patience. <laughs> uh, what what does the hotelier of a of a chicken hotel do if the fox gets? Yeah, in? that's true. How do you keep Are the foxes insured? out? Kat? So obviously we work tirelessly all the time. Uh, we check that it is predator proof. Um, we've obviously done. Um, it's all chicken wired the mesh there's slabbing all around the runs but we check this all the time um so we're quite confident in the fact that it is predator proof from fox what what happens if i bring my lovely half dozen pet chickens to you and i go on holiday and when i come back and you you sort of hand me some some chicken breasts and feathers (laughs) what 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 would happen then do you or or maybe you could just replace them and i probably wouldn't notice (laughs) Devastated if that ever happened. <laughs> what What do you do with yeah. the eggs? Um. So the eggs we put in an honesty box outside the property, and um, I sell them to local people who are 
they're in great demand at the moment and we give all the money to charity oh that's nice that's mm. nice what do you think of this man v I mean, I love the idea of the disco ball. Matthew, tell me you had one of those for your chickens. No, no, no. no. Oh, they, they missed out. Well, that's why. That's why. That's why they needed a holiday. Yes. You would have kept the fox out if you'd had a disco ball. <laughs> would have confused the fox, at least. And is, is business booming, Kat? Are people coming to you a lot? It is, certainly is now. Um, now you've been in the papers. <laughs> yeah. Nice just to see hens get the recognition that I think they deserve. Quite right. How many can you have at once, Farley? Uh, so I believe, I think you can have about 30 until you have to be registered. Blimey, that is have, quite have you thought of branching into ducks? <laughs> <laughs> ducks as well. You do or, do ducks. Or, or llamas, maybe. <laughs> yeah, now if Matthew wants to go on a holiday, yeah. could you take a couple of llamas? <laughs> no. I could give it a go. There we are. <laughs> there we are. Uh, Kat, it's really good to speak to you. Best of luck with it all. Uh, that is uh, Kat Shovlin, who runs Hen Weekend in Kent. So we've learned something every day. Uh, Richard in Tumbling Wales says you, you should play them Hennifer Lopez. Oh, oh, no. That's enough of that. Manry Rana there, and of course you can catch her on the Stories of Our Times podcast wherever you're listening to this. And Matthew Parrish, you can read him in the Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, it's the Focus Group. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Every month, we convene a focus group of voters to assess how the government is getting on and to see what matters to people outside the Westminster bubble in their own words. Today, we've got a group of people who voted for both the Conservatives and Labour in 2019. Some of them have switched from Tory to Labour and others are undecided. So they really are the votes the parties need to play for. As ever, chairing the focus group was James Johnson from Gerald Partners, former number 10 uh, pollster who is here now. Hi, James. Hi, Matt. How are you? I'm very good. I'm very good. Uh, better than Rishi Sunak by the time we've got through this. Um, first of all, as we ha always have to, let's do the legal disclaimer. What is a focus group and what is it not? Absolutely. So a focus group, it's not a poll. Um, it's only eight or so people 
rather than 2,000, 3,000. It's not intended to be representative of the population. Every time, Matt, we get people texting in or tweeting us saying, uh, how, how can these people possibly be, be representative? They're not meant to be. This is meant to dive under the polls to sort of see how and why people respond to the polls in the way they do. And as you say there, we're looking at a specific set of people this time around. Swing voters, we've got half people who are, don't know about how they'd vote next time, having been Conservative or Labour last time. And then the other half are Conservatives who now say they'd vote Labour. And we pulled them from three key constituencies, Rother Valley, Stroud and Wakefield, uh, which will determine the next general election. And um, just remind us why... Why we do this? Why do political parties use it? Why you used to do it for when for Theresa May when she was in Dantry? What's the value of a focus group over a sort of representative poll? So twofold, I think. One is it allows you to dig a bit deeper into the details. So why are people answering the way they do? If people say that they. Uh, are voting Labour, how perhaps strong is that support? Why are people, what's in their minds, what hesitations might be there under the surface that we can use to measure how strong that might be? And the second thing is sometimes you can pick up things and you can't sort of necessarily say for sure that they're that they're representative of the population, but you can pick up things and contours that perhaps polls wouldn't. A good example is on Brexit. Uh, back in the uh, 2019 general election, if you were just looking at the polling, you'd go, OK, all the Conservatives are Leave voters, all the Labour voters are Remain voters, therefore we just need to talk about Brexit a lot. Actually, although lots of Conservative voters were uh, were Leave voters, they more wanted to get Brexit out the way. They wanted to get Brexit done rather than sort of go on and on about it. So focus groups allow you to get that nuance too. OK, well, let's uh, let's get stuck into the nuance this week, then. Um, uh, let's just dive straight in, as we always do. James starts off with the group. Uh, they're all on Zoom, and I listen into it, uh, but they don't know that I'm there, but James is the one asking all the questions. They don't know until they get on the group they're going to be talking about politics, so uh, straight out the, uh, out the traps. Uh, what do they think about how the government is doing? Weak-willed, poor quality people um, with... Seemingly no cohesive agenda. There seems to be a, a low in the government at the moment. We've got a very weak leader. Uh, I don't think there's a, a true leader. Um, I think he's plucking at straws. And I really think that um, we, we could do with a change. I feel like the government is le- lunging from one crisis to another at the moment. And it seems people are just trying to get one up on each other. Limping along doing very little, not very, uh, not great leadership. I mean, if you just worked in um, a general, like, business, if you had a manager, basically, that was a leadership, and then two months later you got another manager, they would run things very differently, and you would never know where you come, you know, where you stand with the whole situation. So I just think it's really bad organised. I think we've had that many different people in different jobs as well. There's no consistency. Wow, James. I mean, that's a that's a tough old listen. Weak, poor quality people, no agenda, no leader, badly organised, need for a change. That's a pretty sort of on on sort of every aspect: policy, personality, politics. It's pretty damning. Yeah, it feels like these voters have given up on the government, and there's two there's two reasons for that. One is coming through there is. The sense of whether it's Boris Johnson, Liz Truss, Rishi, Rishi Sunak, there's been so much change and chaos over the last few years. That's still engendering their views. We, we, we know that from our previous focus groups. There was something else going on there too, though, Matt, that we perhaps haven't had a little bit less of 
uh, in previous months, which is when we asked about the government, people are pivoting straight to leadership. They're pivoting straight to the management. They're pivoting straight to Rishi Sunak. And they're saying that he's weak. And that's a really dangerous word if you're a leader. So far, um, under Rishi Sunak's premiership, people have been willing to separate out Rishi Sunak and the government and say, oh, perhaps he's a bit better, give him a bit more of a chance. That seems to be fading, and it seems to be fading very fast indeed. We should point out, this was recorded on Tuesday night. So this was after uh, the sacking of Svetlana Bravman, the return of David Cameron, uh, and so on, but before the Rwanda ruling from the uh, from the Supreme Court, just to sort of place exactly which bit of chaos they were uh, in the middle of. Um, so they, they think the government's lunging from one crisis to another. How then, let's focus on Rishi Sunak, how do they describe the Prime Minister in a word? Failed. Meek. I'd say um, money, upper class. Out of touch, uh, uninspiring and un- inconsistent. Fence-sitting, a pizza. A bit of a letdown from what I were expecting. Not really a conservative. Weak. Now, the problem with this, um, James, is that as becomes clear during the course of the group, is that there, you know, there, there had some expectations that he might have been better, which we heard from there. He's also been sort of criticised from the left and the right. There were some who, uh, um, you know, are drifting towards the Labour Party. Um, others drifting sort of out the other side. It's not just sort of left-wingers who don't like the look of Rishi Sunak. You know, saying not a proper Conservative, he's been criticised from all angles. Yeah, absolutely. And um, uh, you always have to be a little bit careful with focus groups, whether you're just getting a slightly odd group. But actually, these voters were in sync with previous months' worth of voters in that they, as you say, they used to have a positive view of him. And they've talked about this journey they've been on. And, you know, as I say, the really worrying word there for Rishi Sunak is weak. He's always been viewed as a bit out of touch, a bit a bit too rich. Um, that's always been a problem for Rishi Sunak, and it's one that uh, on paper is, is surmountable. Um, people can think you're uh, not in touch, but can think you're effective. The problem for Rishi Sunak now is that he's lost this any semblance of a sort of strength card. And that is a real, real problem, because if you've not got strength, you've not got competence, and you've also not got in touch, then in the voters' minds, what's the point of you? Right, okay, so it may be, what's the point of him? What has he achieved? That's a, you know, let's focus on some positives. Uh, what has Rishi Sunak achieved since becoming Prime Minister? What has Rishi Sunak achieved since becoming Prime Minister? I honestly couldn't tell you, I don't know. Lie about how interest rates work and inflation. Anyone? What has Rishi Sunak achieved since becoming Prime Minister? Nothing. Yeah, I'd have to Google it, which says everything you need to know. Wow. I mean, God, listening back, it was seemed bad at the time, James. And listening back to it, it seems even even worse. If after a year of being Prime Minister and given everything that happened immediately before with Liz Charles and Boris Johnson and all of that, the fact that a group of people couldn't name a single thing that they thought that Richard Sinak had done, good or bad. Yeah, it's it's pretty it's pretty brutal, isn't it? Uh, and it's worth saying, Matt, as you know, you you were watching the focus group. Uh, I, I was, you know, you always have to try and play devil's advocate a bit when you're moderating a focus group. I was sort of trying to ask them, you know, well, are there any positive sides? Are there any good things? Um, because they were so resolutely negative, but uh, they they really couldn't couldn't pick much out of the hat at all. So uh, 
you know, one one year into Rishi Sunak's premiership, one year and a bit in, this is this is a very a very bad reflection indeed. And you know, I think a lot of conservatives were thinking, you know, perhaps Rishi Sunak could could turn this around. Um, uh, that does not seem to have, have have happened. There's still some there's still some road for this to run. Uh, but uh, people talk about a narrow path to a Tory victory. I've spoken about a narrow path to a Tory victory. I think it's fair to say that that's extremely hard to discern now. Um, this is an interesting question, James, before we come on to some of the specifics and the reshuffle. Someone asks, um, can you please ask James how he manages to eliminate or reduce groupthink in the group? In my experience, individuals and groups are reluctant to conflict with the views of others in the group. Just just give us a sense of when you are managing this, particularly when they all come in quite hard and heavy to start with on an opinion. How do you try yeah. to make sure that you don't just have everyone sort of just, just politely echoing each other? Yeah, it's a great, great question. And it's one of the biggest risks of focus groups. Uh, one thing that we do to manage it is that we get, we get people to go around one by one uh, and we ask them, um, what's your view on Richie Sunak, for example? We get them to write it down, um, whether it's on their phone or whether it's on a bit of paper in front of them. And that way we can sort of hold them to account of what they've what they've sort of put down on paper. Um, so that's one way of controlling for it. You can also sort of zoom in on particular people. So, you know, someone's being a little bit quiet or a little bit coy, um, you can push them a little bit more. Um, so those are a couple of things we can do to control it. Uh, it is one of the biggest risks of focus groups. Um, sometimes you get a very loud voice that dominates, dominates and you need to sort of shut them up. Um, I didn't see that happening here uh, for what it's worth. Those methods, I think, helped us to control for it. But it's a great, it's a great question and a great way risk no polling method is is flawless of course toby's been in touch the focus group is so myopic and not remotely representative which is a point we make at the beginning every time it is by default a feeble attempt to build your stockpile of mud to throw thanks for that toby um i'm not sure who we were throwing mud at given it um most of the time we've been doing this we're often accused of, of the groups being too pro-conservative it's even more striking the level of criticism uh, this time round. Right, let's turn our attention now to Rishi Sunak's big move on Monday. His reshuffle where he sacked Swella Barman, uh, brought back David Cameron, shook up his top team. We spoke to the uh, focus group on Tuesday nights. It was the day after the reshuffle. They had a bit of time to digest it all. Did they think it was overall a good or a bad idea? I can't see it being a positive because... It's like starting again with with other things, with other agendas and 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 their and their thoughts, and so um, yeah, negative for me. Probably more negative than than good, just because it feels like any policies that probably were ticking along and now been set back to zero with the reshuffle. You know, people have got to come and pick up the pieces. As you're saying, they've had so many reshuffles, leadership changes, and in, in the last couple of years, I don't think it's going to make any difference what what happens. I, I think they're just a. A failing business is what I put them down to. So, James, the, the thing that really struck me with this is that certainly the some of the commentary, Westminster bubble commentary, you might say, uh, around this, thought it was striking and bold and he'd picked a side and, no, you know, less of an abandonment, more David Cameron, you know, it, now it's about continuities and all, a clever bit of political positioning and all of that. It struck me that that might have all been true in a different time, but after one, two, three years of political turmoil, of reshuffles, of resignations, changes of prime minister, changes of ministers, this, th these people saw it as just a continuation of chaos and setting us again back to square one, rather than a bold political move by the prime minister. 
Yeah, exactly. I think you can uh, get get buried in the process, but ultimately, you know, voters are looking at this and saying, well, well, what did this do for me? Now, look, it's worth saying that very few reshuffles often create a positive effect, nor do they usually create a negative effect either. So the fact it is creating a negative is is, is not not good for, for the Prime Minister. Um, I think there's something else going on as well, which is uh, that there's a general misunderstanding out there about what the swing voter looks like in for 2024. Um, they're not a sort of centrist, um, uh, you know, pro-immigration, um, uh, you know, Remain voter that like David Cameron. Um, they're actually more likely to vote to leave, more likely to be older, more likely to be socially conservative. And I think another element playing into that is that those voters who have those views uh, felt that Suella Braverman was sort of someone who had her faults, but would often sort of speak the truth, would speak things plainly. And Rishi Sunak seemed to be getting rid of her, is seen by them as him sort of folding to, to, to what they called establishment pressure. And that sort of also created a sense that he's weak. So you've got a bit of a double whammy, really. Chaos. And also, in the removal of Suella Braverman, for all of her faults, that is a removal of a bit of a values connect for those voters between them and the government. Okay, well, let's. Uh, you mentioned Suella Braverman then. Let's uh, hear specifically about what this group thought, this group of uh, swing voters, some undecided, some voted Conservative last time around in 2019, now say they're going to back Labour. What did they think about the sacking of Suella Braverman? There's a whole heap of things that people pander around and, and struggle to talk about because they don't want to appear as against loud minorities, um, whether that's ethnic or otherwise. And, you know, Suella Braverman kind of just said common sense things that people need to be dealt with fairly and equally, regardless of religion, skin colour, any other bias people might have. And... I think people resonated with that. To be honest, I felt absolutely dismayed by it. I just felt for the first first time in a long time, somebody had stood up and said what a lot of people were thinking, what's in fairly obvious. The things she was saying have largely turned out to be right, two-tier policing. And um, I think what she was saying, basically, just flagging up, you know, you know the police need to have control of, of the streets and of, of peaceful protesting. Some of the things she said, uh, I mean, forgive me if I'm wrong, if, um, but she was saying about the homeless uh, issues and, and it's a lifestyle choice and things like that. But um, So some of the things she said, you know, I don't agree with. Sometimes you have to go against the grain, but obviously she's paid the price for it. And James, we should point out that in the immediate polls that were taken, overall, more people thought it was a good idea to sack Suella Barber than, than a bad idea. But just a reminder that even people who didn't necessarily agree with her, everything that she said, um, is, there's still a downside, it seems, from uh, Richard Sinek having fired her. Yeah, and I do wonder whether there's something else going on here. It reminds me a little bit about when you ask about views of Donald Trump in the UK. People say in the polls, overwhelmingly negative. You know, that's what they click when they answer the poll. Um, but when you dig into the, you dig into how they really think about Donald Trump, they start negative and then they go, oh, I tell you what, though, he does speak his mind. Oh, he is quite strong. Oh, we could do a little bit of, of we could do with a little bit of that over here. Um, so uh, I wonder whether there's a slight nuance in views of Suella Braverman there that, um, you know, they sort of respect her ability to speak her mind. And, you know, we've said, you know, month over month in these focus groups, Matt, that, you know, one of the key things that people are looking for from politicians in 2023, 2024 is not, you know, shiny, oily competence. 
but actually um, is that sort of sense of strength and forthrightness and and saying it how it is. Uh, so, yeah, uh, look, clearly um, the polls as a whole show uh, that she may have been more of a liability to the government with the public as a whole, but with those swing voters, with those voters that really matter, she seems to have struck a chord and her removal has sort of, again, made them think, well, what, what's the point then? And I think that's a key thing, Matt, is that it's the lack of a sort of clear alternative to her, the lack of a clear sort of uh, spokesperson for those sort of concerns that people have that have made people sort of throw their hands up in the air and go, well, well what's the point of the government then? It's really interesting that. And, and actually some of the value of focus groups alongside polling uh, and getting both of those things alongside each other. So obviously there was Sibella Barber was one of the big uh, sackings. The big hiring in the reshuffle was the return of David Cameron, again held by lots of pundits as a masterstroke and a return to the grown-ups in charge and, uh, and, a, and a picking a side and the centrist dads are back. So what did this group of uh, swing voters think about that? Cameron, I can't understand because I, I, I don't think he was very good at, towards the end of his term anyway. Absolutely wild that brought David Cameron back into the... Uh... Into the party. I mean, whatever you think of Brexit, right or wrong, for him to bring it into the fold, not campaign for it, then immediately resign when it failed miserably, and then to give him the foreign secretary post. Uh, I just feel like he's been brought out of the woodwork. Um, I think that is a um, a big name, so people know know his name, so they think, oh, you know, it sounds good, it looks good. When I look at him, he just looks like smarmy. Why bring somebody back? You, it's like bringing bloody Maggie Thatcher back, or you know, it's bringing you don't once they've gone, they've gone. It's like bringing Margaret Thatcher back, James. Really interesting. It's always one of those things where listening to the focus groups, normal members of the public going about their business, not thinking about this a huge amount. Sometimes they just really put their finger on something, um, and and their their total lack of. Uh, being impressed by this move is a great counterpoint, actually, to all of us who, who who follow politics much more closely. Public don't much like the grown-ups, I think, is is, is the takeaway. Look, what, one small caveat here is that, obviously, the number 10 will be thinking David Cameron will be an effective media performer for the, for, uh, for the government over time. Perhaps he could shift views. Um, I didn't think they were particularly offended by David Cameron. But I think, it, as you say, it was that great example of the public seeing through it. They immediately identified it as a political ploy, um, rather than sort of any, anything else. And that's how they—that's how they viewed. That's how they looked at it. And then they think, okay, we, we've, we, we've, you know, we've rumbled them. Let's move on. Well, there we are. Um, <laughs> it's all really bad. It's really bad. And I think after we, we spoke um, after the, the the session, James, you said it was one of the worst if not the worst you thought we'd had overall for the Conservatives since we started doing this. Yeah, it, it is. And uh, it's, um, I mean, as we're about to find out, it's not, not great for the other side either. OK, well, let's do this then. Uh, what did the group think about Keir Starmer in a word? Weak. Irrelevant. Irrelevant. Not uh, unpositive. Has been. Unprincipled. Uh, spin. I mean, it's not very different actually to a lot of the week, week, week we had for uh, for um, Rishi Sunak. Um, they <laughs> let's dig in a bit more then as to why they feel this sort of crushing lack of enthusiasm. It seems for Kistama. Although I feel that we need a change. Um, him himself, similar 
to the other politicians, whereas he where he's come from, his background. Just seems very slimy and was underhanded, trying you know, trying to win, get one over on everybody. Just just seems very slimy. I can't stand Jeremy Corbyn. But at least he you kind of know what he stands for and he seemed very he's he's got his ideas and he wants to stand by them and he's out on campaign and he's doing whatever. But Keir Starmer, he seems to want to be something for everyone, which you just can't be. You can't make everyone happy. I just don't feel like with Starmer, I could trust what he says. Um, he, I'm not sure about his principles. He blows in the wind. It's just all um, kind of all fur coat and no knickers sort of thing. It's this, he talks a good talk, but I worry about the rigour of, of what he's promising. Now, James, we should obviously point out that in the latest uh, YouGov poll for the Times, uh, Labour on 44%, the Tories on 21%. So this isn't about saying that Labour are, you know, having a, a, a doing everything wrong. But then you, you look in similar polls, 48% say he's doing a job badly as leader, uh, compared to 34% saying he's doing it well. So, so that sort of vote for the Labour Party doesn't seem to be born out of any great enthusiasm for... Uh, for Keir Starmer? No, they're, they're, they're voting Labour despite Keir Starmer rather than because of him, but they're still voting Labour. Uh, and the reason is, is that Keir Starmer and Labour are the worst of the worst of uh, the be- sorry, the better of two bad options um, compared to the Conservatives and Rishi Sunak. So uh, they're, they're very negative across the board. What it does mean, of course, when you have that sort of view is that there can be uh, a rise of smaller parties. And we heard a couple of people in, in our group say that there's vote for reform. And in those same polls, we've seen Reform UK get a bounce over the last couple of days. I think YouGov for the Times have got them on 10% now. So we may also see attrition to smaller parties too. Um, But yeah, look, Keir Starmer is not Tony Blair. Keir Starmer is not driving a great positive vote for Labour. Um, But when you've got the offering that these voters see in front of them from the Conservatives, uh, it feels to them like, well, it's worth a go. Well, just let's actually focus on that, that point you make about the smaller parties. When you pressed them on how they'd vote, it was interesting sort of where they scattered on the uh, on the political spectrum. Let's take a listen. I can't bring myself to vote for the Conservative Party and its current guys. I don't think it is a Conservative Party. I think it's what Labour was maybe 15 years ago. Labour's gone even further the other way. Um, but I think maybe these one of these smaller parties with someone like... I mean, he used to be really controversial, but I really like him now, like Nigel Farage or Lawrence Fox or someone, you know, these people that seem to just talk common sense now. Uh, I'd be looking around at, uh, like we said before, like, like what Lawrence Fox was saying and co, reclaim. Um, I did go to UKIP at one point, because I, not because I agreed with all the policies, but because some of their central policies I agreed with. James, I think this is a, I think it's the first time that anyone's mentioned Lawrence Fox and Reclaim uh, on one of these focus groups. Um, you know, talk about Nigel Farage and Reform. They are up to 10% uh, in the latest YouGov poll, neck and neck with the Lib Dems. And just a reminder, and I suppose there's a risk and a calculation that, that Rishi Sunak has been making, that if he is moving more to the centre, dropping Swala Bravman for David Cameron, that comes with risks too. You know, that... that being stuck on twenty percent in the polls, that doesn't—that's not necessarily a flaw. He could go lower if he's losing to the left to Labour to the right to reform. Yes, if Rishi Sunak believes that the way to win the next election is through a sort of uh, 
Cameroon liberal conservatism uh, that saw the conservatives do well in 2010 and 2015, uh, then he is, he is deeply mistaken because the voting coalition that the conservatives need to win in 2024 is extremely different to those contests. Uh, even the voters, people, a lot of people talk about the blue wall in the South. Voters in the South are also pretty socially conservative on things like immigration. Um, uh, and obviously we know that those in the red wall are as well. So the centre has shifted since, 20, since 2015. Um, and uh, if the Conservatives do pivot to that, then they will be speaking to, um, they'll be speaking to, you know, centrist MPs in Parliament, but they won't be speaking to the voters as a whole. So uh, there is a real risk of attrition on attrition to the right. But there's also a risk of just more people staying with Labour, because even those people who are switching to Labour from the Conservatives are more conservative on a number on a, a more small C conservative on a number of these key issues like crime, immigration, the protests over the weekend. So if there is a sort of let's go to the liberal centre strategy, and I'm not necessarily sure there is, by the way, but if there is, <laughs> then they will need to write that ship very, very quickly or they're going to see themselves go down further in the polls. Just funny, James, the thought that because it's gone on for so long now, Labour being so far ahead in the polls, does it become a sort of people just start self-identifying as Labour voters, if you like. So that by the time you get to the election, the general election, when it actually happens, it's sort of baked in that actually just spending 12 months thinking I'll vote Labour, I might vote Labour when it comes around, actually makes it, does mean that it is baked in, it's not a blip. Or actually, do you think there is a possibility in the next 12 months, something could happen, Rishi Sunak could do something, Keir Starmer could do something, and we could see those 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 polls at least now yeah, look, I still I think voters are still really volatile and really transactional with their vote. Um, they're really not happy or settled with their vote for Labour. Um, with the switcher groups, we often get them. To, we often ask in polling and in our focus groups, Matt. Um, you know, how sure are you out of ten for that for their vote for Labour? And very very few people ever say ten or even nine. So there's certainly a, a certainly a chance for it to change. The problem is, is is Rishi Sunak and the Conservatives' brand. The more that gets settled as negative the harder it is to win people back. Um, so unless we see a big sort of change, I think, in the Conservatives, in, 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 in the Conservative and Rishi Sunak's style, in Rishi Sunak's sense of leadership, uh, then I think we're going to see what the picture we see sort of continue to continue to settle and, and, the, and the current picture uh, continue. But on paper, at least, um, I do think it's transactional. I think if you're a Conservative listening to this focus group, you're thinking, my goodness me, Keir Starmer is beatable, uh, but we're not beating him. Uh, and that's the problem the Conservatives currently face. It's absolutely fascinating, James, and always a great reminder um, of checking what our own uh, our own thoughts are. Somebody's been in touch. In the problem of the Westminster Village is you are completely out of touch and an echo chamber of each other. I don't know anybody who thinks Lord Davy is anything but a bad idea. I mean, it's a, it's a good point. You know, Westminster Village doesn't need to check itself. But once you got, it start getting to, I don't know anybody who thinks you're just an echo chamber of your own. Uh, of your own making. Um, then uh, someone else says, wouldn't it be nice if we had genuine long-term plans voiced? In reality, the next party will have next to no room for innovative policy. Sorry, beyond virtue signalling. Uh, right, I'm off to wait the leaves. Well, very good, Toby. Uh, James Johnson, really good to meet you. James Johnson there from JL Partners bringing us the uh, monthly focus group on Times Radio. If you want to listen to previous ones, just search wherever you're listening to this, Red Box Times Radio Focus Group. And if you haven't done already, head over now to listen to How to Win an Election. It's our brand new podcast with Peter Madison, Daniel Finkelstein and Polly McKenzie. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. 
This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.